0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. There have been nearly 340 of them now over the past six years. So if this is new to you and you want to check out others, go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu. I always say this in the beginning also, that there's a donate button on the site and we rely on the support of appreciative listeners and viewers to enable us to do this. My guest today is Mary Reed. Mary is an accidental mystic, which is the title of her book, who, following eleven years of profound involuntary visions and insights into divine realms, surrendered her executive life in Washington, D.C. to explore her spiritual gifts in a remote Buddhist nunnery in India. She grew up without any interest in religion, but with an innate knowing that humans had more ability to access greater wisdom than most seem to realize. She's originally from the U.S. Southwest, but spent most of her career directing global healthcare programs and creating nonprofit partnerships throughout America and Africa. Today she divides her time between Thomsaling Nunnery in India, where she is often immersed in silence, Cambodia, where she works with Wide Open Wings, a small charity she co-founded, and traveling to speak with a variety of audiences to share her story as a way to illuminate the common ground of love and precious divinity in all of us and to inspire joyful collective resurrection and remembrance with her unique view of our beautifully awakening world. And as you can tell, Mary's a good writer, because so, she wrote what I, <laughs> what I just read. <laughs> and uh, and the, her book was very well written, and it, it's, it's kind of a page-turner, and, and when it starts, you're telling the story of how you very kind of methodically and carefully were in the process of committing suicide by taking a whole lot of pills. In the book, you don't talk too much about what led up to that decision, although you do allude to you know, financial difficulties and relationship difficulties and stuff like that. Perhaps you could start in just telling us your story, wherever you'd like to start, and we'll see where we go with it.
1: Okay, well, first of all, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm really delighted to be here. I love your work, as I was telling you before. I really love what you do, and I'm so appreciative of all that you offer all of us. So thank you.
0: Oh, thank you. Oh, I want you to start by telling us actually where you are right now, what time it is there, and what it actually takes to get to that place, because it's an amazing thing that we're even able to do this.
1: It is. It's totally an amazing thing. So I'm at Tosemling Nunnery, which is a really tiny little remote nunnery. It's located in the rice fields. You have to walk 10 minutes after you're let off at a little bridge by a taxi. In northern India, it's about, so by bus, it would be 12 hours from Delhi. Mm -hmm. Actually, I'm in the abbess's office, Mm -hmm. and everybody here at the nunnery was very excited about this interview. So they fixed it all up for us. It's really a very, very simple little nunnery. So that's where I am. And actually, to make this happen, they increased the Internet services (laughs) just for this interview because it's really very remote here.
0: That's great. Those little guys out, outside running at double speed on the treadmills getting it. To- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's where you are, and uh, that in itself is interesting, and we'll talk about why you ended up there, but let's go back a, a bit and start at the beginning.
1: You asked first about, or you commented first about the suicide. That suicide came about because me being here in this nunnery is really, really, really far from the life that I was living for many years. I was an executive in Washington. I had a life that I really enjoyed and I didn't have any religious background ever at all, nor did I have any interest in any kind of religious topics. I was never a seeker, never had a lot of questions. I never read the Bible. I didn't know anything about other religions. And in the summer of 2000, I began hearing a voice. And that voice said that I was supposed to be doing something very important. I tried to ignore the voice, but it just kept getting more persistent and more pronounced. And after six months of that, there was a series let me, of Let events me just interrupt.
0: That, so voice, I presume you mean just sort of an intuitive prompting, or was it a Charlton Heston movie, booming voice? Was it audibly inside your head or just kind of more like an impulse?
1: You know, I think I'm. Uh, the way that I phrase it in my book was that it is more like You know when a bass singer hits a bass note, like a really hard, you feel a little after sound vibration. That's what it felt like, Mm. that it was uh, more like a packet of information that's interpreted as a vibration. And it was very, very, very clear. And it kept coming to me again and again and again. And every single time it would say the exact same thing. And that voice said, you're supposed to be doing something very important. After six months of that, there was a series of events that I'm sure we'll talk about, that led to my first metaphysical event. And then the gates just flung open to all of this metaphysical abilities. When that happened, it was incredibly confusing to me because everything was related to God and Jesus and Buddha and angels and the divine realms. And I had no context for any of that because I have no religious background. So I was really very very confused.
0: So specifically, uh, okay. you had a metaphysical event, and everything was related to God and Jesus and Buddha. I mean, what were you actually experiencing that caused you to realize that everything was related to Jesus and Buddha? And what was that metaphysical event?
1: The first metaphysical event was I went to find out what this voice was. I, I went to see a friend of mine who's a psychotherapist and. Um, She specializes in near-death experience and that sort of stuff in Arkansas. I went to see her to get help with figuring this voice out, but at the same time, I had already just a few days before I went to see her also had this sudden realization this really profound realization that I had forgotten something really important and I knew that those two things were connected so I went to her to get help with this I don't mention this in the book but I'll tell you when I was on the plane flying from Washington DC to Arkansas to see her I was trying to figure out what could be so important that something keeps prompting me to do something very important or this thing that I've forgotten. And on the plane, I had this notion somehow that I must have forgotten something like, I know the secret to purifying water, like some very simple little, I know it's silly. Some simple little thing that if I imagine it, you know, how many people I could help if I knew something really, really simple like that. That is exactly what was in my head when I went to see her. And that's the sort of scale that I was thinking on. It's, it's probably something like water. Because you were kind of doing that sort
0: of thing. I mean, trying to help with AIDS in Africa and things like that.
1: Yeah. At this time, I was actually doing clinical research in respiratory medicine oh, and AIDS. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I've always done work to help people. So I thought it had to be something to help people. So when I actually saw her, she just had started putting me under hypnosis. And I went into this event, which ultimately was going into the body of Jesus at his moment of crucifixion. And in that event, learning everything Like suddenly, I just knew everything about the evolution of man up to that point and then I knew everything that was happening in the world at that moment of the crucifixion, not just around the crucifixion scene itself, but everything that was happening and then I could watch as everything unfolded from that point forward to current day. So when you say you knew everything in the
0: world that was happening, do you mean in, in minute detail? Like you knew what some guy in China was doing and what was happening in southern tip of Africa? Or more like a broad stroke kind of sense of where the world was at, trends of time yeah, and all that?
1: The latter. The scale of it is just not fathomable. It was knowing everything but also embodying all of the nuances of everything that was happening at that time and everything that had led up to that moment.
0: Okay. For some reason this silly question has been kicking around my head since i read your book and that is do you think that jesus was aware that you know some chick from the future was crashing his experience there and and tuning into it or is this something that you just tuned into and it had nothing to do with his subjective experience
1: well in that moment i did not have the identity as mary i was aware of myself but i didn't have the identity of mary I had the identity of Jesus on the cross and Christ in the spirit form then. So there was no separation between his knowledge of his own being and me within him. Does that answer your question?
0: Kinda. So it's not like Jesus, the man, 2,000 years ago being crucified, was aware that people from the future, or namely you, were tuning into what he was experiencing. It was just. That's probably too rational and linear an explanation of what was actually going on.
1: It was very much me being present in that moment. Essentially, I wouldn't have been from the future in that moment, if that makes sense. And so, in that scene, that was very much me understanding the world before Christianity, with the birth of Christianity, and then the evolution of Christianity from the perspective of Christ. Mm-hmm. So that scene was three and a half hours. And then the next day, she took me back in a regressive hypnosis, went back in a different way. It was a completely different scene, but again, in the ethereal realms and meeting angels and a godlike being and other things in another three, almost three and a half hours. So that weekend began a series of these really profound events but almost all of them were related to the origins of something that we think of as as divine truth for example you know the origins of what we would consider the universe the origins of buddhism the origins of these uh, of thought and of fear and other things
0: why do you suppose you were being shown all this there must be a reason uh, right i would say
1: well It would just be conjecture on my part at this point. I have not been shown specifically, you need to know this. I mean, in the big picture, related to my life's work, about coming here to be able to bridge the ethereal realms and the physical realm, that that is my purpose. That's why I came. One would think that that would, you know, as part of my course in this destiny, this would be how it's going to play out.
0: Because my sense is if if you had this sort of nagging, prompting, that you're supposed to be doing something, you're supposed to be doing something, given what you subsequently experienced, there's some sort of higher intelligences that were prompting you. And so when you had these hypnotic sessions and began experiencing all this stuff, you must, I, I would assume, that you were getting shown the things that they wanted you to be shown to ha- to have the kind of education you needed to have to do whatever you are subsequently doing or going to do.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. It feels to me like they just sort of threw me off the deepest end, and and we're going to start there. So this is how the whole thing has progressed. Every single time that these things have happened, the only time that it happened under hypnosis was those first two times, and then I began to spontaneously have these things start happening. And every time that they've happened, it's been like all the way to the fundamental origin of something. In this case, for example, the origins of Christianity. So the challenge that I had... Going back to the original comment about the suicide was, you know, I had a very big life in Washington, D.C. I was very busy. I had a lot of projects and programs around the country and around the world. I lived very much a sort of normal executive life without any kind of spiritual context to anything. And so having all of this stuff come into my life that I couldn't talk about, because it's not something that you can kind of just tell people at the water cooler over the weekend, and so I didn't know how to talk about it. And I also didn't know how to hold it. And I didn't know what to do with it. So it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And there was a there was a large piece of me that was feeling quite insane with the profound, unspeakable nature of all of these things. Trying to hold my two worlds in balance was really very, very difficult. And so I kept trying to seek help with this. I, I saw allopathic doctors and acupuncturists and shamans and various kinds of healers all over the world, and no one could help me understand what was happening, and they couldn't help me talk about it, and they couldn't help me know what to do with it. So the further and further along I got in trying to seek help, the more failures I kept having over and over again. And then in uh, around 2008-2009, all of the normalcy in my life and everything that I had been very successful in just began to crash. Everything, my relationship, my home, my work, my family, my finances, every single aspect of the normalcies of my life just came crashing down in very certain point of no return ways. And at the same time, the spiritual piece is just pushing higher and higher and higher. So when the balance tipped upside down, I made a decision at that time that what must be happening in my life was that this was all a sign that the work I'm supposed to do is from the divine realms. and That was nothing at all that I had been shown. It was just a decision that I made in my massive state of despair. And so that's when I made the decision to end my life with a drug overdose. Ultimately it was March 23rd,
0: 2011. I want to dwell on this a little bit because I have pretty strong opinions about suicide and I'm sure you do too at this point. My mother tried to commit suicide three times taking massive overdoses of phenobarbital which my father needed to take for his epilepsy. I have three very good friends who are ardent spiritual seekers who committed suicide two by gun one by self-immolation and a couple of those guys had been living on a monastic program that I had once been on and had been you know really applying going at it intensely, uh, seeking enlightenment and God-realization and so on. And, you know, if our little conversation here can save one person from making that decision, I think the whole thing will have been (laughs) worth it just for that. Because, in my opinion, which I stated is rather strong, I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to euthanasia for somebody who's on their deathbed suffering terribly or something, but, you know, for a relatively young person, relatively healthy person who thinks that, that they should check out for some reason and that, that they have the, the right to just make that decision that, that they, they're they needed elsewhere and that, that they should kill themselves. I, I just feel like it's wrong and that they just need to work through something and um, it's very sad when that sort of thing happens and they probably need professional help because in all three of those cases, all four of those cases, including my mother, there was definitely a, a psychological disturbance going on, depression and, and whatnot, that, that the proper intervention could have perhaps balanced out and prevented that turn of events. So, I just want to throw that in there um, as a sort of an editorial here, and then I'll, I'll let, mm-hmm. you, let you continue, maybe you want to play off what I just said.
1: You know, I can't imagine that there's anybody that comes to that point that hasn't felt like they've tried everything, that it is a, a last-ditch effort to end the suffering. And everybody has their own, what they would consider the depths of sort of the bottom, that there's nowhere else to go. So, for example, in my case, I tried to seek help again and again and again and again and again. And so for me, there was no answer. I couldn't get any answers anywhere in my life And I'm sure that other people in the state of such despair as to seek suicide feel the same way, that there is no other place. So I do think that having someone to talk to is probably one of the most important things to be able to prevent it. So, for example, in my case, I couldn't talk about what was happening. If I felt like I could trust other people and open up, it probably would have prevented me from going there. And in that I mean like a friend or a family member or something, not somebody professional who's paid to listen to you. But beyond that, I can't place a judgment of right or wrong personally on someone else because the pain is, you know, if someone wants to end their life, if they're terminally ill and they're in really intense physical pain, we would have a lot of compassion about their desire to stop that kind of pain so is a mental or emotional pain any less than a physical pain is it less significant or important to get to the point of wanting to end one's life i don't feel in a place to judge that right or wrong i certainly can sympathize well, not i don't know if we need to yeah to we get don't there. need to
0: lay right or wrong on it but obviously if you're if you're dying of some kind of cancer and you have you know weeks to live I mean, there are spontaneous remissions, but chances are you're going to die and maybe you're just going to suffer for the next few weeks and it's compassionate to let yourself go. But if you're in your 20s and you happen to just be very depressed or something, you know, it seems to me it's a different situation. And various spiritual traditions talk about the karmic implications of all this. And you said there was no place to go, no one to ask, no one who knew what what to tell you, but now we're actually having a conversation which thousands of people will watch in which we can say, hey, keep your chin up, there's light at the end of the tunnel.
1: (laughs) Well, and actually this points to a a very important issue, and that is um, when I would see psychotherapists or physicians. Now remember, this is now 15 years ago. And when I would talk about that I was having metaphysical events and there was this thing that I could not figure out, people dismissed me pretty quickly. People were very sort of suspicious and, and not really feeling that it was really true that i needed this kind of help and so i think there's a real value in having spiritual dialogue and mysticism in particular metaphysical events unexplained things coming into common conversations and health care and mental health in particular because the um, therapists that I work with, they didn't have any kind of training to work with somebody who was so seriously depressed. So you mentioned that a couple of your friends that committed suicide were people on the spiritual path. Mm-hmm. And All I think works. that, yeah, so having somebody, having um, healthcare professionals, in particular mental health professionals, trained in being able to handle and manage and have their own resources to support their own work with these people is really valuable. And the, the therapist who finally helped me significantly is part of a network of people that are trying to introduce that into their circle of professionals in um, the Maryland, Washington and DC area. Yeah. So it's incredibly valuable. And I, I think that that's something that really needs to be talked about in more of a public sphere.
0: Yeah. There was something, maybe there still is, called the Spiritual Emergency Network, and Stanislav Groff has talked about spiritual emergencies, and um, many other people. And there are therapists who are actually more or less beginning to specialize in this, or at least are very familiar with it, because it keeps coming up so often. And and don't just dismiss such people as crazy, but realize that something is going on. And one, <coughs> of, the, one of the reasons I have people on BatGap who are having kind of fire-out mystical... Experience. There are some people say who say, for instance... You shouldn't just keep having these people on who are seeing angels and all that stuff and having, you know, just talk about non duality. That's the ultimate reality. But it's becoming more or less epidemic that people are having all kinds of amazing experiences. And we get feedback all the time from people who don't know quite what's going on or why this is happening to them or what to do about it. And I I think it is necessary to sort of bring it into the culture more, a wider, a deeper understanding of this kind of phenomenon so that when it does happen to people they aren't freaked out and and they feel like they can turn to somebody for information
1: yeah because i i didn't know a single person the other important thing about programs like yours and the idea of introducing more spiritual conversation in sort of uh, common culture is that there's a unique language to this awakening world right now you just mentioned non-duality i would have had no clue what that meant. I didn't even know the word consciousness. Um, When I was referred to see Dr. Rudy Bauer, he runs the Washington Center for Consciousness Studies, and I highly recommend him, by the way. He's in Washington, D.C. But I couldn't figure out why the word consciousness was in the title of his business. Like, what does that have to do with anything? To me, that's just being awake. I didn't have any idea about... The use of these kinds of words in spiritual work. So introducing newcomers, and there's lots of newcomers. I've, I've watched a few clips from your show, and I know that you have people that had no spiritual background who sort of had these profound events start happening. It's important for us to have resources to go to, to, to understand how people are talking about it and where are they getting their information, and how can I reach them, and how can I connect? Who is their community? None of this was available to me. Or I didn't know how to find it, certainly, uh, 15 years ago.
0: Yeah, and incidentally on BatGap under the past interviews menu, there's a, 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 one of the choices is categorical index, and in the categorical index there's actually a whole category of therapists whom I've interviewed Who are very familiar with this Mm -hmm. sort of thing Um, and obviously there are probably many more such people out there but help is available. So we can move on to other topics but I just want to say that if anybody is feeling suicidal or depressed or anything else, help is available. It's not a shortcut to anything to end your life and your existence, your evolution is going to continue but it's probably going to be a major speed bump to make that choice and there are better choices.
1: So let me just add. Obviously, my suicide attempt didn't work. I took 97 prescription pain and sleeping pills with three glasses of wine. And then I just miraculously woke up on my own two days later. And when I, I woke up very sick and my physical state was really very bad, I was in excruciating pain and I had no ability to control my motor skills. And when I was conscious enough to realize what I had done to myself, And the reality finally hit of what the implications of that act would have been on my family and my friends and, uh, you know, my former colleagues and all of this. It was really a profound remorse. And I still struggle to this day with, sorry, with the idea of what I did to me. Sorry. Sorry. That's good. This happens in my talks, too. <laughs> it's really extraordinary. I mean, I, don't, I, I obviously don't know what I would have thought had I succeeded. Maybe I would have been in a blissful state thinking, boy, I'm happy to be free, but I'll never know that. In my physical form, now in a body that, that is really, you know, it's forever, I have a liver that will never be the same. It's really uh, something I have to live with for the rest of my life.
0: And um, what would your insights be on the the notion that the body is a vehicle and you don't want to damage the the vehicle that that you depend upon to make this journey?
1: I would say that's 100% correct. And for me, I consider my painful right side, which still pains me today, five years later, as a chronic reminder, not chronic, but a a constant, persistent, and quite loving. This is not a um, continual punishment. This is just a reminder that this body is important. And um, there's no other system for me in this world to bring in source and allow all that I am and all that comes through me to express itself except through my body. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I would say that's kind of a universal truth. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so obviously your whole whole story is not just about your your suicide attempt. Um, There's much more to it. So unless there's more you want to say about that, let's move on to what happened after that and how things have been progressing over the years.
1: Well, actually, when I woke up from that suicide attempt, I had, at that time two worlds that I couldn't live in. I couldn't figure out how to be successful in my normal physical life. And I couldn't figure out what to do with a spiritual life. So I couldn't do either one. And I had been trying forcefully, aggressively, eagerly to figure it out, to be in control of my life as I always had been. And after I woke up from the suicide attempt, I realized that there was nothing I could do. I needed to stop. I just needed to stop. And so I stopped trying to figure things out. I stopped trying to plan. I stopped trying to fix. I literally sat on the edge of my couch, numb. And I I surrendered in the most supreme way. Every day, many times a day, I would just say, God, you can see I have no idea what I'm doing. So, if there's going to be doors that open, you're going to have to open them. I cannot be the project manager for my life anymore. And when I got into that really extreme state of surrender, literally within just days all these doors just started opening one by one by one by one. I didn't even really have to push the door. I mean, it was just like an invitation to come this direction and come this direction and come this direction. And one of the first doors to open was leading me to a therapist. Now, by this time, I had seen more than 40 practitioners of of various kinds, and nobody came even close to helping me. And right after the suicide attempt, the door was open to this absolutely perfect therapist who worked with me to get me back on my feet. And then she happened to have trained with Dr. Rudy Bauer at the Consciousness Institute. So it was just, you know, the right resources, one right after the other, but it was after I stopped trying to be the one in charge Mm. and um, let my life unfold in the way that it was meant to.
0: It's interesting. Irene was just saying the other day how it seems that a surrender so often precedes a significant spiritual awakening or shift, and how... Hard knocks can often bring one to the point of surrender, various other kinds of difficulties, but it does seem to be a common theme that the old bumper sticker, let go and let God, seems relevant.
1: Yeah, I'm often asked that question in my talks about um, do I feel like that? It's really necessary for that people to get to that stage. I don't think it's necessary for everybody. I recently saw your interview with Della, mm-hmm. I think, and she seemed like a woman. She was very happy and... She had this awakening without any kind of crisis that led up to it. But I think for many people, I have a very strong mind. I couldn't have otherwise living in Washington, D.C. for 17 years. But in order for me to get to a path, particularly because I had no religious background, in order for me to get on that path, something really serious had to take me out. Of where I was gonna go or where I where I was and where I wanted to go and there was no other way for me to do it I would not have gone gently in that direction it just wouldn't have happened so I think for people that are really entrenched in their ideas of what their life should be and they're really not headed in the direction that at a deeper level they want to be or they're here to be I think that 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 state of surrender has to be they have to be sort of pushed there
0: yeah I would say one way of putting it would be that as long as you feel like you're in charge and that you can handle things and so on and so forth, there's a natural tendency to want to do that and you know, to run the show. Uh, and you know maybe some people are flexible enough or humble enough or something that they can just recognize that without being knocked over the head by something, they can just recognize that maybe there's a better way to do it and they should just relax. But I think a lot of people, myself included, really needed to sort of hit bottom before shifting gears like that and, and kind of allowing something else to take care. And, and wouldn't you also say that it's not just a sort of a, a black-and-white, first-you're-here-then-you're-there kind of situation, but there are certainly deeply ingrained tendencies and remnants of, of styles of functioning that are just going to keep cropping up again? Or for you, was it a complete watershed moment and, and ever thereafter you have been in the back seat.
1: Yes, to the latter. It was a watershed Mormon, and I I have not known how to. um, In part, I I haven't been able to feel like I'm in control. I tried to do it after uh, nine months living here in the nunnery, getting sort of okay. Now I can put my life back together again, and that was just a complete disaster. But also, let me go back to something that you said. People like, and I'll bring up Della again. So. What I thought when I was watching her, which was a lovely interview, by the way, is that I think that, so for me, in my situation, there was enormous lessons that came out of it. Because on the other side, after the suicide attempt and after coming into the spiritual journey with really immense focus, what I could then see was all of the conditioning of my old life and all of these lessons that were just beautiful in what I had been doing, which was not a bad thing. I I lived a very nice life. I enjoyed what I did and I helped a lot of people. But I saw it through a completely different lens. And I know that I came into this life intending to have that kind of rich continuum of experiences. I intended to do that. And so people like Della and other folks who Perhaps they come in already having done a lot of that work, and they, they have those sort of with those experiences to get those different understandings and lessons, that they're more already a part of who they are. That's sort of how I thought when I was watching that interview.
0: So your, bro- your voice broke up slightly when you were saying that, but I th- to summarize then, to make sure we got it all, you're saying that in retrospect you can see how all the events of your life were uh, were various... Lessons, different types of lessons, mm-hmm. and um, that uh, that it, all, it was all sort of well and wisely put in terms of teaching you the things you needed to learn. Right? You were saying that—that's what you were saying, right? Yeah,
1: that's a, that's a fair summary. Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: and um, and you said you know somebody like Della or maybe other people come in having already learned a lot, but I don't know. I would I would conjecture that if if you come in at all, there's more to learn, or you wouldn't be here. <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. But uh, but I'm saying maybe hers were different lessons. Oh, different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe they don't need to be learned so sharply. There's a different kind of embodiment of an experience to learn it gently or to learn it more sharply or severely. And uh, for me, mine was definitely the hard route.
0: Yeah. Are you comfortable universalizing that to say that Syrian refugees are learning lessons and kids who are enslaved in Bombay and you know, and, and stuff like that are learning lessons? Or does that seem too harsh?
1: Well, everybody is learning lessons. It doesn't matter whether we are a prince with no problems, which I doubt, or Syrian refugees or children sold into slavery or whatever. There are lessons on every side of those issues. Mm-hmm. But bigger than that, and this is part of what my um, site is, my site is very both with the details and also more cosmically. But the lessons that those people are teaching are not specifically just for them. Their teacher is actually on a much larger level. It's more to the conscience of the collective. So there's a lot of dialogue. Syrian refugees is a great example. We have a lot of global conversations about compassion, about responsibility, about fairness, about fear, about judgment. We have so many conversations because we have millions of people teaching us that there's a problem, that there's a global cry, there's a loud cry for love. And how are we going to answer it? And so people like that, people that have the more severe, publicly noticeable issues, they're a different kind of teacher, and they're learning different lessons, Mm -hmm. as we are. We're learning lessons with them.
0: Well, as you know, um, spiritual traditions, Buddhism, Hinduism, and so on, kind of, um, you know, they, they address this point of learning lessons, and they all sort of indicate that we're all progressing toward something through these lessons. And you've given this some thought and had mystical insights regarding the, the progress of the culture of over the past couple of thousand years. So, what would you say, without just parroting what Buddhism says, what would you say about what we're progressing toward Individually and collectively.
1: Well, a couple of things. First, I don't know what Buddhism says. Oh, <laughs> I'm in a Buddhist nunnery, but I don't I don't know about the Buddhist doctrine. I get the support of the nuns here, but I don't actually know the, the philosophies. I know them from the experiences of being in the mind of Buddha, but that's very different than the, the teachings that came out of it. And I have much deeper than just a 2,000-year look at this. Literally from the origins of the first I know my first thought as conscious awareness, literally my first thought. And I have seen in a very cosmic way how evolution uh, is happening. And evolution is kind of a funny word because that implies linear point A to point B to point D. And that's not really uh, my experience of it. However, I know that individually and collectively, the whole point is that we are seeking to be all that we are, and all that we are is love and goodness. And so the exploration of what all is possible in that state is exactly what we're doing. And so there's not really an end goal, but our purpose is to feel the wholeness of what we are, of all that we are. And that's an infinite, it's infinite possibilities. And so what we're doing is exploring that. But what we're what we're progressing towards now is ways of exploring that in a way that's not a dualistic, conflict-based exploration. And that's where we're coming out of. We're not coming into, we're going to be whole suddenly. It's that we're going to continue experiencing the possibilities of that in a way that is much gentler. And it is, it is not, um, so it's not suffering-based. Okay. That's where we're going.
0: A couple of questions. So when you say you know your first thought, this means like when you as an entity first came into existence like a thousand lifetimes ago or whatever. You know, you, is that what you meant by that? You know, your first emergent impulse as an individuality?
1: So, in the scene that I was talking about with, with Christ, is the moment of the crucifixion and understanding all of the world in that moment. And in another instance, not under hypnosis, was going into the mind of Buddha at his first moment of enlightenment and seeing what he saw. And understanding things in the way that he's, he understood them before any words were ascribed to that situation or any teachings came out of it. And so it was the moment of the foundation of Buddhism. And in that same kind of origins way, in the field, the ultimate field of nothing, the exquisite void of nothingness, which is also the field of pure potential what was described to me as uh, the primordial ground, the being before there's being, or the potential for life before there's the living of life. So I'm entered into that field, first seeing it and then becoming it. There's no separation. And then experiencing the way that it came into the manifestation of life, the existence And that is the infusion of that God source, or that that love source, the source, into its vessel for expression. And in that moment, in that first pivotal moment, the waking up to conscious life and understanding, the first thought was, I am goodness, and I want to be all that I am. And when that happened, in my own individual awareness, which I'm also in oneness with everything, everything was set in motion, everything, all of evolution started from that point.
0: For your particular jiva, your particular soul or entity, is that what you're you're saying, or for for the whole universe, which one are you saying?
1: My experience, well there was no separation between those two. Hmm. There was no this and that, it was all the same.
0: What I'm getting at is, I mean, we have this sort of notion of a big bang, you know, the universe emerging from nothingness or from pure potentiality. But we also have the notion of, you know, some people speak of old souls, for instance, that, you know, some people are young souls, some people are old souls. So so the notion seems to be that souls kind of emerge from the primordial soup, you know, at a certain point, like, like little bubbles coming out of ginger ale or something, and then they, you know, according to whatever tradition you ascribe to, they progress through a series of many, many many, many incarnations and they evolve up the scale and eventually become human and keep evolving and so on and so forth. So, when you talk about your initial emergence uh, and your first thought, that's the kind of um, f- the kind of framework that I, I put it into, but I'm, I'm not sure whether that's what you're saying or not.
1: It would be, if you have an old soul, that soul has to have an origin somewhere, yeah, yeah. Uh, presumably, right? Yeah. And so it would be the origins of where that initial, before there were many, mm-hmm. came. Or, because we think of things in a, in a time sort of way, but it's not really that way, it would be when one was the individual and the many at the same time.
0: But, you know, there are seven billion people on the planet and many more billions of other types of species. Are you saying that each of these beings has an origin as a soul and that if we could have the omniscience to see it, that we could see where that particular soul emerged and that each of them has its evolutionary trajectory?
1: Well, I I don't know the answer to um, if everyone has their individual soul. And, And the reason I can't answer that is because soul is a word. (laughs) And when we get into this problem of trying to identify or contain um, something with a definition, then we necessarily exclude possibilities of something else. And so I can't really say definitively this or that. In my experience, it wasn't that kind of clear delineation It's more complex than that. And we don't have a word for it. We don't have a concept for it. You know, the definition of soul is wrapped around a concept of this happening and then these things happening from there. And it's it's beyond that. It's not really something that I can put into words.
0: When you have mystical insights or visions or experiences, do you come out of them with a sense of frustration in a way because it's almost impossible to translate what you experience into words or even into into rational thought?
1: Yeah. In the beginning, I really struggled with that. I really, and I have to, it's not so bad now, but in the beginning, I have to write really fast. And then it's like, what do I write? I can't even, like, what do I, then this happened, but how do I say that? And it's really impossible to, to capture all of the nuances of everything that happens. It's not possible. What I can capture is just an aspect of the scale of these things. And anybody who has these experiences, I'm sure, has said the same thing. But the the other thing that I experienced in sort of coming back, it's not so bad now, but in the beginning it was so sharp, this sort of difference from that, that world to this world. I would experience great frustration in coming back to this world. I, I once wrote a creative piece called The Mystic in the Coke Bottle. That's what it felt like, coming back from these events is sort of squeezed back into this life, having been so expansive. And then I have to come back in, and everything feels very rigid, and I struggled enormously with that in the beginning, especially because I was having these things while I was working or while I was in my neighborhood or whatever. So it was, it was just too messed up.
0: Do you feel like um, you're in much better shape now in terms of integrating the boundaries with the boundless? Yes, yeah.
1: Yeah, much better. It's, you know, I, I have the foundations. The foundations were sort of the first pieces to come. And so I needed a long time to integrate those understandings and those perspectives into my normal day to day life. You know, m- most people who approach the spiritual path from more of an intellectual um, curiosity, like they do a lot of reading or studying or whatever, their part is hearing the theories or the philosophies and then taking the time to sort of figure out how that fits into their life or to apply it to their life. And I'm on the other side of that. I have the knowledge and then I have to figure out how to fit that into my life from the other side. Either way, it, it takes a long time, but for me this part is much, much easier now, it's, it's yeah. much gentler.
0: Yeah, I would have to say that the name of the game of spiritual evolution and enlightenment and all that stuff is learning how to integrate unboundedness with boundaries, to use a couple of simple terms, there, there could be other terms. And for some, some people it becomes, a you know, they go through phases where it's really lopsided there are some people in this world, of course, who are very good at boundaries, you know, very good at precise performance of various kinds, flying a jet plane or doing neurosurgery or something, but who may not you know, have any sense of, of unboundedness. And there are other people, more rare, who end up having some kind of blowout awakening and have to relearn how to brush their teeth and stuff, you know, because they, yes. t- they totally lost any sense of how to function within boundaries. But ideally, one could fly the jet plane or do the neurosurgery while firmly established in very unbounded condition.
1: Yes, I can totally relate to the, um, you can't figure out how to do things. Um, particularly, there's a part of this site that is kind of quantum in, in nature, not a mystical vision as as much as more energy. So I can also have these experiences of, and I should mention that all of these are uncontrolled, of seeing, transcending the mechanisms of interpretation of reality and coming straight to just the field of energy. And um, in those moments, I can't figure out at all how to be normal. I can't figure out where I stop and something else begins and forget brushing my teeth. I couldn't even, like, what's the toothbrush? Like, it's a really um, difficult thing. But I also want to say something about I don't, I'm not sure how you said it, but the spiritual journey is all about this or that.
0: Having it be a living reality. I mean, there are these vast cosmic yeah. regions and unbounded awareness and all kinds of subtle realms and all this stuff. And, you know, ordinarily we've we've kind of got it together in terms of being able to function as an individual, at least to some extent. You know, we're good at functioning within boundaries, but then, you know, when we start dipping uh, into the the spiritual realm, we discover that there's this vast other thing that in many people's experiences is is very hard to integrate with having a job and raising a family and, you know, functioning efficiently within boundaries. And that's um, why we have I, monks, because they, they, don't have, they don't have to do anything. They can just kind of, like, wallow in the, in the wonderfulness of... <laughs> oh,
1: I'm going to tell the nuns here. That's what their life is about. <laughs> uh, you know, I sort of see it uh, a little bit differently. I, I agree with you that I, I understand how you would uh, frame it that way, and I, I appreciate that. My experience is, is there's sort of two ways to the beauty of it. And I I really consider it so exquisitely beautiful, this spiritual journey. One is, as we come into awareness of something, then in a more mystical way or a greater divine understanding, our conditioned life is suddenly illuminated. Like we understand how we have been fearing or how we have been judging or how we have lived our life in this way because of this conditioned belief or pattern or habit or whatever. And understanding those pieces of ourselves and how we came to be how we are and engaging with other people and then seeing being able to recognize that in other people is so beautiful. It really is how we've done this is just magnificent. I mean we we sort of took the hard road to do it but it's really beautiful. So there's an understanding of where we've been and who we are and how we are that's really valuable. At the same time, beyond that or beneath that or however you want to call it, is the other side of the coin, is the greater divine understandings of the unconditionality, the equality state, the the lack of fear, the, the total trust, how we're completely loved in a way that we have no idea about, regardless of what we've conditioned ourselves in this other life. So for me, I see those two things really coming together more and more and more on this spiritual journey, is really appreciating both sides and how... One is supporting the other, and one has been supporting our our other life all this time, and we've had no idea about all of the intricacies of it that are really beautiful.
0: I think that's kind of what I was saying too, just in different words entirely. You know, just different way Mm -hmm. of putting it. Sometimes the word Brahman means totality. You know, and Brahman is kind of a synonym for enlightenment in a way—the Brahman consciousness and so on. But it's it it would mean a um, having subsumed within a, the, the greater totality of one's experience, all the, the sort of diversities and complexities and everything else coming to appreciate and, and know that experientially as the one thing, essential constituent mm-hmm. of, of, of everything, the ultimate reality. And that takes a great degree of integration and assimilation, mm-hmm. assimilation. And so on. I just heard the term the other day, I think Swami Shivananda or something used it, of weak yogis, people who have, term he used, uh, people who have sort of had this yogic awakening, but are still very deficient in certain real areas of their personality, their behavior, things like that. There hasn't, mm-hmm. hasn't yet been a complete infusion of that you know, deeper reality into all the, the channels of their relative life.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, I can understand that.
0: Getting back to what you were originally told when you started hearing this voice, you've got important work to do in the world. There you are in a monastery in the Himalayas, not working too much. Well,
1: actually, I've been working for the uh, nunnery.
0: (laughs) Yeah, But I mean, do you feel like the best is yet to come in terms of what you may end up doing? And would you say that, in a nutshell, that involves somehow serving as a conduit through which the the deeper realizations you have had can be transmitted or infused into world consciousness
1: yeah without a doubt i'm literally i can feel it so strongly in fact i i have been working at the nunnery part-time in exchange for my room and board here and to have a place where i can stay in this sort of peaceful environment but i do come out to talk about my story and share and that sort of stuff in the last two years and part of that has been me sort of tiptoeing out into the world to see how it feels to use my voice on a public stage and to see how people hear that what do people hear me say and how do people respond to my presence or my words and then what is it that they're responding with and this has been great great learning for me i had no clue because i i don't attend church i had no idea about the level of people's hunger i really had no idea and that has been very poignant in seeing how people react to me and to my story and to my my message of hope. I mean, you can just see it in their eyes that people want that permission to have hope. It's phenomenal. And so, uh, yes, I, I do feel like the, the best is yet to come. And I feel myself right now, literally, like within the last few weeks, just starting that, like, yeah, here it comes. I can just feel it. And uh, so it's no coincidence that, I mean, no accident rather that uh, we're having this interview at this time. And I'm feeling more um, inspired to write and things are starting to sort of formulate and whatever. So I can see definitely ways that I want to um, share my knowledge and work with people most assuredly. And I'm very excited about it, I have to say.
0: Yeah. And so how, how do they react? Um, You know, and you mentioned, you know, you've been out doing some speaking and it's very inspiring how people react and so on and so forth. I mean, what kind of impact does it have on people, not only inspiring them in the moment where they're sitting in there in a lecture, but are there any anecdotes of shifts or changes that have taken place in people's lives of of more of a kind of a permanent nature?
1: You know, when when I set out to just tell my story and I really had no expectation. I knew I needed to tell my story. I needed to start, start talking. I had no expectation about what was going to happen. I certainly didn't anticipate really changing people's lives. I just thought they might find it an interesting story. They might find permission to feel okay if they have these events start happening in their life. I wanted to uh, let people know that They may have friends or family that maybe start having this, or if these stories start coming out in the public, that this is reason to have hope. That's the sort of things I wanted to talk about. And what happened was, from the very first talk, and my first talk was in um, a Roman Catholic church in Stanford, Connecticut, Um, I was invited to several churches there. And it was mostly little old ladies. Like the average age was probably 80. And I had no idea how they were going to react to a mystic coming to tell their story. And they were 100% across the board blown away. I could feel it as I was talking and I, I was like, I don't, I don't exactly know what's happening here. And When I finished my talk, I said, so I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions that you have. And there was dead silence throughout the room and, I'm, and it was a packed room. And I, I just thought, well, I have no idea what this means. And then finally, this, this woman in the front row, she raises her hand and says, I'm sure that I have questions, but I am so spectacularly startled. I have no idea where to start. And then everybody says, yeah, 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 that's, that's how I feel. They weren't uh, used to hearing such direct, profound information. From somebody standing right in front of them talking about the same things that christ came to talk about the same teachings that they're trying to sort of incorporate in their life i'm standing before them saying i've never read the bible but i can tell you what you know about the teachings of love from jesus are absolutely spot on and that there is this resurrection that's happening and i understand the christ within i know what this is And so I just didn't, I didn't expect that. And every single place that I went, that was the reaction every single time. It doesn't matter if it was in Connecticut or Michigan or North Carolina or wherever, across the board, the reactions were really profound. And then people, you know, after the talks, people, you know, line up to meet me and get me, sign their book or whatever. And then people started to tell me their stories. And the People have lots of things that they don't tell that are the same kinds of mystical, mystical secrets that they've been keeping. And so they have a little uh, insight into themselves that opens those doors. But the other thing I really didn't know uh, and I certainly didn't anticipate was the level of people's personal struggle that they have to find answers to their deep questions or their deep sorrow and when people started to come up afterwards and sort of whisper to me that these really intense problems you know a terminal diagnosis or a child who has died or these other things and they're looking to me this person who just simply has a story at this point to give them some level of guidance I I didn't anticipate that because I've never been a spiritual teacher or in a spiritual counseling uh, role what happened to me in those moments when people are coming to me and they're, they're eye to eye with me telling me these things, it's a little bit like an out-of-body experience. I have no idea what's going to come out of my mouth. And then there's this thing that just transpires between us. And whatever's happening, whatever's coming through me and out of my mouth is so perfect. Um, and I, I don't mean that arrogantly, but it's just there's this thing that's coming through to say, I hear you, and here is this love that we can offer in this moment. And so in that way, it's been stunning. It's been really, really beautiful. So I'm very much looking forward to more of that.
0: That's really sweet. We've talked both before this interview and during it about, you know, serving as an instrument of God or mm-hmm. as an instrument of the divine. And it's, it's very interesting having that experience um, because of the... The surprises one one experiences as things come out of your mouth, you know, that you wouldn't have anticipated, or that you didn't know you knew, uh, and things mm-hmm. like that that you couldn't possibly have calculated would be just the right thing for that person to hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah, and that, I'll mention what we talked about last night was. I was saying that you in particular, you're like the lab partner. You're like the spiritual lab partner that people should seek out because you like, do all of the work and we can just peek over your shoulder and look at your notes at all of the work that you're doing and we don't have to, to do the work ourselves. You've got the people that you're interviewing and the stories that they tell and what you do is really phenomenal. We're really very, very blessed to have you.
0: Well, thanks. You know, I'm just doing my little part and um, I couldn't do it without people like you and people like Irene, (laughs) without whom this whole thing would be an organizational shambles. So, you know, we're we're all kind of like one big team playing different positions.
1: Yeah, go team.
0: (laughs) Okay, so where shall we go from here? Rather than just sort of dreaming up a question, is there any impulse within you of of what we haven't covered and, and, you know, what what we want to be sure to cover as we go along today?
1: Nothing comes to mind right
0: off the bat. Okay, so let me just ask you then, one thing that, that sort of comes up based upon what you were saying is that, and actually I was thinking as you were speaking of shifts in cultural and scientific understanding that were so difficult for the pioneers like Galileo or Louis Pasteur or others like that who had a new understanding of the way things worked and were ridiculed and threatened with all kinds of dire consequences if they kept saying what they knew. But eventually there's a saying in Sanskrit, satyame vajayate, which is that truth alone is victorious. Eventually, when it's time for something to be understood by the culture, there's no stopping it. And, um, you know, it can be very challenging for the avant-garde who have to sort of deal with the prevailing ignorance is, is an appropriate word. But, you know, what I was thinking as you were speaking about the little old ladies in Stanford was that um, there may be a, a, a much greater groundswell of um, awakening and you know, mystical experiences and so on than we realize, and there may be you know a lot more people than we realize out there who are having these things and don't know quite quite what to make of them or are afraid to tell anybody that kind of thing. In fact, George Gallup, whom I actually met in 1976, has done polls of this sort of thing. I don't even know if he's still alive anymore, but his organization has done polls. Mm. and Large percentages of the population say they've had mystical experiences and so on. And so, you know, we still live in a a society in which a materialistic mindset is predominant and kind of governs the economies and governs the, the sciences and so on. But if we really are heading for a more enlightened age, then that has got to shift people like yourself and many others are playing an important role in, in helping it do so.
1: So there's several things I want to say on that. One is, I think that as we, more and more of us, wake up, and more and more of us mobilize to infuse into our communities and in, in our day-to-day lives our understandings, a more of just a really basic fundamental level about choices in life, about what we're listening to, about what we believe, all of these things, that they will ripple out into the systems, all of the systems that support the problems that we see in our world, economically, religiously, politically, etc. So I think that there's a lot to come in that regard with the everyday people making different decisions and making different choices about their life just based on these um, understandings that they come into. But bigger than that, I think in addition to these understandings, I think that old language, and in some ways kind of new language too, I think we're going to rethink the value of sort of the one-line teachings um, that people really rely on and see the benefit of a more inclusive uh, way of talking about spirituality, religion, etc., And by that I mean there's a lot of the spiritual teachings that I, in my very short little time here, have watched. Um, So, for example, the idea of karma, the idea of saying that our world is an illusion, the law of attraction, this idea that suffering is intended to be here to make us stronger, that we're intentionally conflict-based, all of these sorts of things, there are ways that we recognize in a more sort of enlightened perspective that these kind of hold us back and they're a little bit of a cop out in some places. So for example, I live in India and karma is often talked about. For example, most notably the untouchables here, the caste that nobody has anything to do about. And so there's a blowing off of the need for compassion for that group because it's just their karma. And there's also this idea that people can play now and pay later with karma. So, you know, I'll do what I know I shouldn't do now, and I'll just pay the consequences in the next life. I hear these things here. So there's a watering down of the initial intention. So I think that the law of attraction as well, you know, we look at a lot of people and think, well, if they would just think more positive thoughts, you know, this wouldn't be happening. I'm especially troubled by the idea that this teaching about the world just being an illusion that really dismisses our call for compassion to people that are really suffering. I often think about my own spirituality, my my sort of check on things. I've worked in very hardship places. I worked in uh, really, really destitute townships in Africa in many places. I see it all around here. I also work in Southeast Asia. And I think about seeing a room in which there is a nine-year-old girl who's been sold into sex slavery. She lives in a room with a padlock on it. And her mother has sold her into slavery because she needed the money. Her clients are soldiers. And so I think about, like, the application of spirituality. If you're standing in the doorway of that nine-year-old girl on one side, and the mother and the soldiers lined up on the other side, what is a spiritual practice or a spiritual philosophy that honors all that's happening in this moment. I can't turn to a nine-year-old and say, if you just think more positively, or this is a karmic thing, or this is all an illusion, or this is just awareness. There's real cop-out, in my own opinion with that kind of stuff. It's a dismissal of real, true suffering that goes on, that I've seen, that I know is around, and I personally can't let go of that level of deep desire to end suffering for all beings with such narrow-minded philosophies. I know that the intention of those philosophies is not narrow-minded, but we in the normal um, societies tend to take that and, and kind of cop out with it. So I, I hope that what evolves, and I, this is sort of what I see more and more, is a more inclusive way of talking about the application of spirituality and the principles of things. Like That's not to say that they don't have value. I think they have enormous value, and I think they have enormous validity. But I think we're going to get out of this idea of using these as excuses for not digging deep.
0: Yeah, that was beautiful and brilliant. And I was listening just this morning as I was riding my bike um, to Matthew Wright, whom who i 'm going to interview next week he 's an Episcopal priest, young fellow, and uh, he was talking about the, the second axial age we 'll be talking about this next week and he He was talking about how certain traditions you know r- used concepts such as karma or a world as an illusion and and so on and so forth and and uh, you know went very deep in a certain dimension, but were really not all inclusive and um, He quoted Father Wayne Teasdale, who is a, a Catholic theologian, I believe, as you know, talking about how, and, and many others have said this, that it's really not non-duality to say a thing like that. It's kind of a lack of recognition of the omnipresence of God in that nine-year-old girl and those soldiers. There is... I'm not saying this anywhere near as well as I'd like to, but I
1: understand what you're you know what I'm
0: trying to say? It's, it's like if God is really omniscient and omnipotent and so on, and, and if we think a little bit, we can kind of convincingly see that he, it is, God is, that, that divine intelligence permeates every speck of creation, then to say the world is an illusion, what we really probably are trying to say is that the world is not as we ordinarily perceive it to be. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't care about it. It just means we actually fail to appreciate it that it's actually Mm -hmm. much more divine, much more sublime, much more wonderful than we recognize. And if we treat it as mere illusion or mere material stuff or anything else, we're doing a disservice to the reality of what is.
1: Yeah, that's well put. I, I would agree with
0: that. Well, I was going to say, if we could actually appreciate what is, then compassion would be unavoidable. It would be inevitable. Well, you know, what's, what's the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If, if you actually see mm-hmm. that you are them, then we can't bear their suffering any more than we could bear our own. And, mm-hmm. and we're, we're forced to translate our divine cognition into action of some sort.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think my own response in that situation, standing in that doorway and looking both directions, would be that First of all, I see you and I see your suffering. And second of all, I hear this loud, profound cry for unconditional love, for that connection to God. Mm -hmm. And so my responsibility in this is how will I answer that call? And for me, it's that simple. It is, you know, the, the looking into my own life and my own work and my own abilities, my own story, my own skills, my own access and determining how will i respond to this and in what way where where in the thread because what we're seeing in these moments i mentioned earlier about these people are our teachers these are the really big teachers for us teachers on a much greater conscience level but they're the outcome of the problem they are not the problem and so taking time and taking the responsibility to look back in the mind streams all that's included in these mind streams that have brought them and us to that moment. What's in there? And what part of me and my choices in my life are in those mind streams supporting it? And so I think the the work is really deeply nuanced. And uh, I think if each of us can come to that place of A, honoring and seeing the suffering, and then B, questioning how we'll answer that call, because we've all got a way to do it that's really valuable, every single one of us as a way to do it, that's incredibly valuable.
0: And as you were saying that, as you were kind of like laying out that hypothetical, not it's not hypothetical, laying out that situation in which the nine-year-old girl is a sex slave and there are soldiers outside the door, there are literally situations like that going on right now in the world, Mm -hmm. you know, my thought was, gee, that people listening to this might think, oh yeah, it's terrible, but what can I, as a spiritual aspirant, do about something like that? I mean, I'm not there. If I were there, I'd probably get arrested or killed or raped or something how do you confront? Christ said, resist not evil. How do you confront a situation like that and actually Mm -hmm. bring about change in the world? I could give you my answer, but I'd rather hear yours.
1: (laughs) Well, I want to hear yours as well. You know, there are people for whom it is a joy and a passion to respond to that directly. Like they will start a charity or work for a charity or volunteer for a charity that addresses that issue. And then there are all of the sort of causes that lead up to that, that they may join in those efforts. Oppression, gender inequality, economics. So they'll come into it from different places that ultimately are drivers of that kind of suffering. And for them, that is, there's lots of ways that they can do that. And then there are people whose most valuable thing that they can do is pray and offer up some, this call for greater compassion and greater sight. And then they can extend that call into their own life of what are they doing to support in any kind of way the factors that influence that kind of suffering. I'm actually glad you you brought this up because I did want to mention something. There is a way that our own internal work, especially on our fears and judgment, especially on our fears and judgment, have a massive impact on the collective, and particularly now as we're in this really great stage of momentum in our world. So, let me give you an example, and I'm going to speak now on an energy perspective. Let's say that you and I have a conflict. Maybe you heard one of my talks on this. Um, This is an important example because it really is a very profound thing that's happening on our planet and that that works on an individual basis. So let's say that you and I have a conflict, and I've done something terrible to you, and I'm I'm mad at you, and you're mad at me, and we have these energies of anger and blame and uh, frustration. What that looks like on an energy level, it looks exactly kind of like a thread. It looks like a little beaded thread. It's a thread that gets really tangled up between us. It doesn't matter that you're there and I'm here. Energetically, in the field of awareness, this is what it looks like. It looks like a thread that we just wind up around us and get it all tangled up and then as I'm in my world and I'm telling people about how awful you've been in this situation and I can't believe you did this and this and this I'm winding that same thread around these other people Mm. and you're on your end talking about it with people and so you're doing it too you're wrapping that thread around and so as we move around And we uh, move around in our lives and we bask in the energies of blame and uh, victimhood and all of these sorts of things. We're all just tangled up in this massive tangle of conflict energy. And planetarily, this is what we have looked like. We are all just in this mass entanglement energetically and we're bound down. Literally, it looks like we're bound down and held still without being able to have a greater frequency or flow. And so in this situation of conflict, if I, in this circumstance, if I really earnestly take the time to go in and and evaluate my own role in this, my own part, my own responsibilities, my own feelings, and I own everything that I feel, and I finally get to the place of forgiveness, and that is not forgiveness of you, because that would be a judgment right there that you've done something wrong. That forgiveness is always only for me, for the way that I've seen things or the, the thing that I've done. When I get to that place of authentic forgiveness for me, what happens energetically is that thread that has completely been round, wound around me just opens up and begins to fall away. It begins to flow because I have transmuted my own fear and judgment to compassion and understanding and love. And this is what's happening on my end. That thread just begins to fall away. And as it begins to fall away from me, it necessarily begins to fall away from you. You no longer have that push and pull on my end. It's the same thing that begins to happen with the people around me and with the people around you. All because I did my own work. And planetarily, this is also now what's happening with us. This now the flow is beginning to open up on a massive scale because more and more and more of us are interested in this introspection and getting into that place of really authentically transmuting our behaviors and reactions and these habitual things that we've manufactured long ago and we've begin to let them go. We've begin to open it up. And so now all around the planet We are having these threads open up, and now we begin to vibrate at a higher frequency. We begin to flow more readily and easily between us, and really sensitive people can actually feel that. So in this situation where we look at suffering of others that we don't think that we're related to or whatever, they are impacted. The energies that are creating those scenarios are impacted ultimately by what we're letting go of Individually, Anything that is in their entanglements, any of the energies that are in their entanglement, and I'm sorry for speaking it sort of in these solely energetic terms, but the things that entangle them, oppression, inequality, judgment, fear, etc., any of those common threads that we have, that we clear in our own field, we begin to open up in those fields as well. And what that looks like in real life is that you begin to see these sudden just miraculous kinds of policies that change, or a new leader comes into existence in a place where it's really key for this kind of issue in their country or something. These things, those, that's the manifestation of the changes that we've made in the collective energy field.
0: That's great. I'm reminded of a simple analogy, which is that if you want the forest to be green, all the trees have to be green, you know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, It's interesting to think of specific examples, for instance, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the reunification of Germany or the abolition of slavery or the passage of the Civil Rights Act, you know, major sort of social milestones that have taken place in the world. Uh, Just
1: all recently. They all have, have happened just in the last 100 years. When you look at just the last 100 years, based on race, based on gender, based on now sexual orientation, all of these enormous... Advances in equality, and this is where we're all—it's all, all going to come out, especially in equality. Because, in—and uh, I talk about this in my book—in the field of potential, everything is equal. There's no judgment. There's everything is equal. So when we come into a dualistic setting, we intend to come in like this, but eventually we start right, wrong, less than, more than, whatever, and in there is suffering. And so as we reduce that suffering, we we become more and more and more back to the state of equality. And so this is why you see it more and more uh, coming about in these issues.
0: It does seem that there's a an acceleration of, of social change taking place. I mean, you can look on the dark side and think, and, you know, certain political factions are always saying, oh, we're, the country's going to hell in a handbasket, and, you know, we... You know, got to restore America back to its original greatness, and all that, or make America great again is the catchphrase, and and so on and so forth. But when you actually look at the sorts of changes that have been taking place, as you say, in terms of equality for LGBT and civil rights issues, and a number of other things, there seems to be a, you know an acceleration of progress taking place. Uh, and so would you say you know, that that is some, in some way r- as a result of people unraveling their tangles, to use your metaphor? On without mass, a doubt. Sc- On a mass scale? With,
1: yep. And what's causing no, masses of no people to unravel
0: their tangles? What's the cause of that, if we want to take it a step further back?
1: It's no coincidence that all of these changes have coincided with a greater spiritual awakening. We look at the last hundred years, all of the things that have sort of come out, that have mobilized people's curiosities and um, explorations and access to books, to um, lectures, all of these sorts of things, starting in the early 1900s. Eastern religions starting to come into the United States and our ability to travel and get exposed to more cultures and ideas and to collaborate more. Now look at the internet, right? Yeah. It's Absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And I especially love watching the youth rise up through the use of social media. It's like right in time for a group of youth that are not thinking the same way that you and I thought when we were young. I mean, they're thinking in a much more collaborative, loving, harmonious, unity inspired kind of way. And they have social media to let them do that, to let them work together.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it is pretty... I don't know what the cause is, but, you know, whether cosmic rays are being beamed to us from the center of the galaxy or what, but, you know, and there are various astrological explanations and so on, But and, sick, you know, in the Vedic tradition, various cycles that take place and so on, but there does seem to be this upsurge taking place in, in collective consciousness. And it has its manifestations in terms of, you know, the technologies you just mentioned. But then those technologies, in turn, enable it to happen. So there's this kind of positive feedback loop. Um,
1: yeah, at, yeah, we're all, that helps we're all each other in that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm reminded of Harry Potter, He Who Shall Not Be Named. But I know you're talking about Donald Trump and, no. uh, and Make America Great Thing. Right. Even here in the nunnery, we know about him. There are many, many, many things that look really dire in our world and really accelerated in their occurrence and really crazy. Just like they're just at the level of, like, what the hell? This is not to be unexpected. That is, again, that's not the problem. That's the outcome of the problem. So the momentum began long, long, long ago, particularly energies. That look like Donald Trump and his ilk, they like things to push against. That's something that likes the friction and the more that we historically have pushed against it, the greater those energies have become. The opportunity that we have now is not about the expression of that problem. It is our reaction to the expression of that problem. Because now we are more and more and more and more of us are reacting rather than fighting back to the problem we're reacting much more compassionately and we're mobilizing in much more productive and compassionate and collaborative ways that we haven't done before i was talking about that in um, one of my talks in greenwich connecticut and i was saying that because somebody in the audience i think had mentioned something about these You know there seems to be more war and uh all of these different things and i said it is not that it is the war that is the opportunity for us right now to change it is our reaction to that now that's that we're changing and there were two women happens to be two women in the audience that were from the sandy hook community which was the site of one of the massive school shootings that had just happened i think a couple of years before my talk And both of those women raised their hands and said, well, actually, we can testify to that firsthand. Because when this shooting happened in their community, the day that it happened, their community immediately came together around the motto, we choose love. Because everything around them, the media, all of the people coming into their communities, everyone wanted to blame, they wanted to hate, they wanted... And they just said, we understood immediately that the last thing that we need is more hate. That was the, That's what led to this. So our reaction from this point forward will only be love. And they had literally T-shirts and bumper stickers and everything. And the the whole community came together around it. And we're seeing more and more and more of that, and not just in America, but all kinds of places around the world. We don't hear these stories often on the headline news, but... Uh, they're most assuredly happening.
0: Oh yeah, I just watched a documentary about Malala the other night. You know, the little Pakistani yeah. girl, and, um, and when she was shot, it, you know, as instead of, um, you know, defeating her, what she was standing, for, uh, you know, trying to do, education for girls in Pakistan, it it rallied the nation around her and and uh, you know actually awakened the the. So, in a way, she kind of served as a sacrificial lamb for that, but came out th- fortunately lived and came out more more articulate and brave than ever. but one thing she said in the documentary that the someone some questioner or some reporter was saying you know don 't you have any kind of blame or hatred or anything She said, "No, not even one molecule, not even one atom, not even one cork you know, I just ab- absolutely am not reacting mm-hmm. that way to what happened
1: <laughs> wow yeah. and and how poignant that it is a young girl from the Middle East that becomes that voice, that becomes that poster child for forgiveness and for mobilizing in um, a really productive, loving, compassionate, system-changing world. I just, I'm so excited about it. Literally, this is I'm giddy about all these changes. It's really so beautiful. Yeah. So beautiful. And look how eloquent she is. Oh, I mean, it's incredible. just stunning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What young girl knows the word
0: quark? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I didn't know that until I was Smart 45. girl. In case anyone is thinking at this point, well, what does all this have to do with enlightenment and so on? <laughs> it has. It has to do with it. Because enlightenment is not just an individual thing, it's not just you sort of marinate in this wonderful subjective experience and it's good for you. It has social implications and, you know, we're all in this together and I don't think that any significant number of people in the world can get enlightened unless commensurately there is a, a, a vast, ch- well, It's I don't know what the chicken and what the egg is, but the more people awaken spiritually, the more society is going to change. And the more society changes, the more, more easy it will be to awaken spiritually. So when we lapse into discussions like this, I think it's very relevant, even to those who feel, I, I really don't care about all this social, social stuff, I just want to end my own personal suffering and experience, you know, awakening. It, it, it's all tied together.
1: It cannot be that one person becomes enlightened and nothing is, is impacted by that. Right. So as more and more and more people come into these enlightened understandings, we become a more enlightened society. And that's the goal. What's the point of becoming enlightened and then suffering still continues all around you?
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, Like the the little girl in in the brothel in in Bombay that you alluded to, I mean, what's the point of us being all sort of blissful and wise and spiritual if if things like that are going to continue? It, It should be that our enlightenment impacts those kinds of things and helps to, you know, eliminate them.
1: My enlightenment is forever incomplete if she's not included. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's to be expected. That's the whole point. The goal is, if we can wrap our heads around, this is no pun intended, the idea of this collective mind that we share, the mind of God, that we're all in there, we're all a part of it. It is that collective being that we aim to love unconditionally, fully, beautifully, romantically, to fall in love with it. And that means caring for every individual yeah, and every issue.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, Again, I was listening to Matthew um, Wright this morning, and I forget who he was quoting, but he, he was saying something like, you know, the 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 kidney can't say I don't care about the heart and the heart can't say I don't care about the brain and you know it's like every one of these things within our own individual body depends upon every other component and and ultimately nothing is less important than any of I mean you can afford to lose an arm but we kind of need to function as a as a holistic healthy whole in order to be a you know optimally functioning functioning human being so again it's incumbent upon Spiritual seekers, I would say, to recognize that, as you just said, you know, no man is an island. Uh, we're all part of the main, and that you know, what what good is my enlightenment if it doesn't contribute to the alleviation of of the suffering of others? It's a very Buddhist concept, isn't it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Yeah.
0: Somebody sent in a question. This is a fellow named Serge in Luxembourg, and he kind of gets into asking about what prayer in Christ you would you would offer. I know you don't have a real Christian background, but I think we can get something out of this question. He said, I'm learning to establish myself in presence instead of being caught in negativity and raise again my vibration. The attuning is quite exhausting. Since the Christ is and always has been my role model, I would ask you what prayer the Christ in you could give me to ground me in the now. Thank you very much. God bless you. So you might put it, in sl- you're answering in slightly different terms than the, the question he asked, but I, I'm, I'm sure you can give him something. He's having a hard time getting, um, getting established in presence and not being caught up in negativity.
1: The first thing that came to mind as you were reading that is that it sounds to me like he considers the Christ separate from his own being. And uh, I, I actually did a talk on the power of prayer, saying about the wide-awake prayer and what happens when we pray. Ultimately, when we pray, We're simply aiming right into that common field of love that we all share. So I would ask if he could... uh, I don't have normal prayers, let me just say that. In thinking about who he's praying to, if he's bowing his head and aiming right into the heart of what he really wants, which is to feel love. I would actually not say a request but I would have a conversation. I would really ask the questions about what I feel. Ask the questions about... I'm not going to be able to answer this without seeing him personally, but I would ask him how much he's really able to be honest about how he feels. He can say he feels negatively, but there's a judgment attached to that negativity. And the prayer that he's looking for is the thing beyond that judgment. I would hope that he would find a way. And actually, if you want to give him my email address, I would be happy to talk to him directly.
0: Okay, or I'll forward his email to you. I have his email here. Um, Yeah, I'm
1: just going to fumble around with this in sort of a general way.
0: Okay, so Serge, I'll do that. I'll send you Mary's email address. Well, let, let me ask you this then. A lot of people I interview do have private consultations with people over Skype and whatnot, and they, you know, they kind of, some of them make their living doing that. Um, are, are you kind of into offering that sort of thing, or is it just too difficult living up in the, in the monastery and so on?
1: Yeah, I'm actually just, as I said, uh, just in the last couple of weeks, really starting to come out, and that's definitely one of the things that I would like to do. I don't have it set up in a way to do that right now, but yeah. that's definitely on the horizon. Hmm.
0: Oh, if you do enough of it, maybe you can fund a fast Internet connection there at the the memory. (laughs) (laughs) But you'll have a lot of nights up at 2 in the morning (laughs) trying to talk to people in other time zones. (laughs)
1: That's all right. What else am I going to do?
0: There's a few passages from your book I'd like to read as we kind of move toward a conclusion. They're kind of beautiful. I'll just read them and then you can elaborate on them if you like. You say, today I know change is coming and it is not the conflict-centered, fear-driven story of Armageddon. It is love like we have never dared to imagine. I see this love with absolute certainty. It is coming. In fact, it is arriving more and more every day. Um, I watch now as a massive gathering of countless divine beings, masters, archangels, angels, etc., come together throughout the cosmos. They all watch in jubilant celebration as individual bodies of light begin to illuminate one by one around the planet Earth. There is a great love coming, like a great tidal wave. Like the force of a thousand winds, it is unstoppable. You should welcome it when it comes.
1: Yeah. So in my book, I alternate between my narrative and my life, my stories and metaphysical events. And what you just quoted is from a metaphysical event, in which, uh, I think that one was one in which I had been swept up into the greater Christ consciousness. And I am with both Jesus in that, and the Christ consciousness as a whole. And that's the the words coming out of that. When that happened, the um, scale of what I can see, if you can imagine the cosmos rolling like this, This uh, momentum, you can assign sort of a joy to that momentum. This is what I could feel. This is what I could see. This is what was coming out as this is happening. These uh, divine beings that are celebrating with us are just a testament to the uh, fact that we're not in this alone. And we're not the only ones that are impacted by these uh, remarkable changes going on. This is a universal momentum, there's celebration on every level happening. And I'm sure that if you've had other mystics on, they've probably told you the same thing. It's a jubilant time that we're in on every level.
0: That's great. Do these insights ever translate into any kind of specific predictions or timelines or anything like that? I mean, do you ever get any kind of concrete visions about what things might be like 10, 20, 30 years from now?
1: No. There's never a timeline with it because there's never any time in these. uh, There's no aspect of time ever in these things. Everything is happening at once with all of this. However, I have seen where we're going in terms of the state of more wholeness. We're already whole. It is us recognizing more of our wholeness. And um, that part I've definitely seen, and it is not describable. Mm. (laughs) it's definitely beautiful.
0: Even though it's not describable, can you describe? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you, you have a sense of like how society might function in 20 years it, with greater wholeness being the norm? Um, what our political systems might look like, our economies, that kind of thing.
1: I can't put years on it. it well, it's not, it not Let's forget the years.
0: Let's not say 20 uh, years. Let's just say sometime what it might Yeah,
1: like. um, it's definitely more harmony based and it's, it's much simpler. You know, people still have differences, but it's a different... uh, I heard somebody talk about it in terms of different flavors of ice cream. It's all ice cream. It's just a different flavor of ice cream. We still have differences, but we don't experience them, nor do we deal with them in sort of a combative, conflict kind of suffering way. It's definitely more unity-based and collaborative and much more creative, much more creative. And the reason it's much more creative is because nobody is bound into these roles and expectations that are societally imposed. And so people have the freedom to express their full potential. And their full potential is far beyond what we do right now because we are really, really restricted in our expressions of divinity right now. And we're heading into a place where we're going to be masters of that.
0: That's great. One of the reasons my interviews are so long is that I always have this feeling like I want to just discover everything about the person and and give them the opportunity to tell everything about themselves to to the audience. Uh, But it's by necessity always going to be sort of just a taste, you know, just a glimpse. And um, you know, if people want to find out more they they can pursue it. And, you, know, you have a book one can read, and uh, you 'll be doing more work as you go along and you know another book yeah mm-hmm. another book, and you put, you have a website where you 've written a bunch of stuff and uh, so on and so forth so by necessity, you know each one of these interviews is just sort of a glimpse into uh, you know the world of one or another awakening person in the world it 's a great joy for me to be able to research people such as yourself, week after week, and then have these conversations with them. It's really a joy and a privilege. So um, you know, I've really enjoyed this. I just wish you the best.
1: Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this as well. It's been such a pleasure, and I've been looking forward to meeting you. I love your breadth of knowledge and your presence. I really am very, very grateful for you.
0: Uh, and I for you. So let me just make a couple of concluding remarks um, with regard to Mary. I'll be putting up a page on batgap.com like I always do with each interview that will contain some biographical information about her, link to her website, link to her book, link to her next book. When you get it published, Mary, let me know, we'll add that link, and uh, some things like that. Then, um, in general, with regard to this show, it's an ongoing thing, and if you go to the website and explore, you'll find all kinds of interesting things. One of which is that just this week we finally got this system working a geographical guest index where if you type in a particular location, like Chicago, you'll see a list of all the teachers who are offering something in an outgoing radius from Chicago sorted by distance. So, you know, at 50 miles is this, at 100 miles is that. That'll be growing as more and more teachers register for it. There's about, I don't know, 50 people or so who've put in their information so far. There's also the email newsletter thing if you want to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted or you can subscribe on YouTube and YouTube will notify you. The donate button, as I mentioned earlier. There's an audio podcast for this. A lot of people don't have the time or the bandwidth or whatever to sit and watch things for two hours in front of their computer, but you can subscribe to the podcast and listen while you're commuting. Many people do that. So thank you for listening or watching and thank you again, Mary
1: my pleasure thank you Rick
0: have fun up there in the Himalayas and uh, we'll see everybody next week with Matthew Wright whom I mentioned earlier as being the next guest thanks